All right, well, we're going to start, so please find your seats. Good morning and welcome to Sunday School. We're talking more about the flood today. And as you know, there are many reasons that the so-called wise and intellectual of our age reject the historicity and global nature of the flood. Even many Christian teachers, notable Christian teachers, big-name teachers that we would benefit from and stand with in many other areas, they nonetheless compromise in this area, hoping to gain credibility or keep credibility along with today's wise men they dismiss or reinterpret the Genesis flood account, the flood account away from its plain meaning. If we truly wish to be wise, however, if we truly wish to be knowledgeable, then we must, as we've said, we must start with the Scriptures. We must start with the Scriptures and submit everything that we see and hear in our world to what the Scriptures say. When it comes to the flood, as I said, the Scriptures are plain. It really happened... And it really was global. Now some might say the flood was a myth. And that Moses, the writer of Genesis, was merely going along with the myths of the time when he wrote about the flood. He wanted to give them a story. He knew they already heard these myths about a flood. And so he just accommodated their misunderstanding. But why can we say confidently, based on what we've seen over the last few lessons, why can we say confidently from the scriptures that Moses, was, that Moses was writing no myth? How do we know that he was actually writing history? Yes, yeah, Steve. Well, he's given genealogies all the way back to Adam. So, I mean, it's, these are literal people that have, you know, these are literal people that lived. Right, even right before the flood account, the <clears throat> Noah... And his descendants are, are given in a real genealogy. The whole surrounding section is, and indeed all of Genesis, is historical narrative. So there's no reason, for, or just on that alone, we would say, we would expect that the flood account was also history. What else shows us that Moses was writing history? Yeah, Roy. Exactly. That's right. Jesus and the apostles, they refer to the happenings of Genesis as history and particularly the flood. They refer to it as history and they even base their own exhortations off of the fact that the flood happened. They make comparisons to the flood to the last judgment and so forth. What else? The New Testament confirms the history, treats it as history. The surrounding context of Genesis treats is history. Yes, Bill. That's right. Even the oh, go ahead, Bill. Very right. So we have, as Bill was saying, a lot of. Specific time details, not just in the flood account, but in the surrounding context. We know the exact year of Noah's life that the flood happened. We know the exact months and days that various things of the um, the flood happened. These details of time and also details of the construction of the ark, as we'll see a little bit more today, they portray real history, not a wink-wink history. 
No, those details are for real history. And also, we didn't draw particular attention to this in our last few lessons, but the flood account even calls itself a historical record. In Genesis 6-9, it says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. It calls itself history. So no, Mo Moses could not have been just writing a myth contextualizing for the Israelites. Just going along with the, the wrong stories that they already believed. No, he writes history for them. And if Noah was simply accommodating their wrong beliefs, then that makes God, who is writing through Noah, a deceiver. He leads people to believe something that is not true. The Bible clearly treats the flood as history. But maybe we've misunderstood the history. Maybe Moses was really talking about a local flood or a tranquil flood that didn't really affect the earth. We've just misinterpreted it as a global flood for many, many years. Last week we asked specifically, was the flood global? But our answer was an emphatic yes. The flood was global. Why can we say from the scriptures that the flood was global? What's one reason? Exactly. We get details about how far, how high the waters rise. And it says it covered by more than 20 feet the highest mountains or the highest hills, which is physically impossible for a local flood. If it was a local flood and it covered the highest hills, it would have gone over the other side and would no longer be covering those highest mountains. Why else can we say the flood was global? Yes, Rob. Exactly. The inclusive language about what was destroyed. Really, the, the universal language isn't just applied to the things that died. We keep seeing the phrase all, every, all, every. But specifically, those phrases are applied to what was destroyed in the flood. And it's repeated in so many different ways. It's as if the, the writer doesn't want you to miss the fact. All things in which were the breath of life, all flesh, all animals, all mankind, all mankind and all beasts and all creeping things and all birds of the air. It just says it many different ways. All of them perished in the flood apart from those who are on the ark. So we've mentioned a number of things that we talked about the last week that the inclusive and universal language, the repetition of what died in the flood, the height of the waters being above the mountains, and also the descriptions of where the waters came from. You remember the, the waters begin to rise on the earth due to the bursting of sub-ocean fountains and floodgates opening in the sky. This was a dramatic event and one that definitely caused a disturbance in the earth. It couldn't have been tranquil. It couldn't have been local. It affected the very form of the earth. So we see the flood as history. We see that it was global. And what we see in the world today it's exactly what we'd expect from a real global flood. And we know the two ways that we see that. What are two ways that the world, or what we see in the world, testifies also to the truth of the Genesis account? Yes, Dwayne. That's right. The fossil record. Though... Some scientists would have us believe, oh, the fossil record gives us no evidence of a global flood. Well, that's because they're interpreting it according to their own assumptions. But if you interpret it according to the assumption that the Bible is true, then it totally lines up. You see billions of dead things laid down in rock layers all over the earth. 
and marine fossils in very strange places, even on the tops of mountains. Aside from that, there's something else. That's exactly what we would expect from a global flood that we talked about last week. Yeah, Craig. Exactly. Exactly. We have flood legends from far-flung cultures, hundreds of cultures all over the world, talking about a global flood and someone who was able to go through the flood with a boat, often taking animals on board. This is to be expected from a global cataclysm whose record was passed down from the only survivors to all the people who spread out across the earth. So if the Bible is so clear about the global and historical nature of the flood, and if it even makes sense with what we see in the world today, why do so many disbelieve it? Why do so many doubt the flood's history and the global nature of the flood? Yes, Dwayne. Exactly. So there's a presupposition, there's an assumption that many make and which they must, to maintain that assumption, they must reinterpret the flood account. And as you're explaining, Dwayne, that assumption is about where the earth came from and how old the earth is. The, the rock layers, as claimed by scientists since about the 1800s, they can only be explained according to geological uniformitarianism, which is that the natural processes that, have, that we observe today, they must have always been that way. There couldn't have been any big cataclysm that interfered. It was just these slow, gradual processes. That's what explains the rock layers, and therefore we know the age of the earth, and therefore we know that the earth was not supernaturally created. So that assumption cannot admit a global flood, because as Duane said, that would totally destroy that assumption. Your whole geological record would be messed up by how the earth was reformed. What were you going to say, Roy? That's good, Roy. We must not and cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Even from an evolutionist being very candid. Thanks for sharing that. But as we mentioned last week, that assumption, that intellectual assumption, or before I go to that, let me hear Paul. What were you going to say? Hmm. They, 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 they
Well, I think that's a valuable comment that you're sharing, Paul, that for many people, they're not even going that in-depth to into the science or into um, uniformitarian assumptions. It's just simply, well, it's the same issue, I think, for both, which is man's reason sees the Bible's account and says, that's not reasonable to me. Man's reason and observation, he says, I just don't think that could have happened. Whether he's uh, someone who's a scientist or someone who holds to what scientists say, and he says, oh, that's because... We know where the rock layers came from. They came from slow processes. There's no way a flood could have happened. Or if it's just simply, I don't think they all could have fit on the boat, which is exactly what we're going to talk about later. But it comes down to man is putting another authority above the word of God himself, his own mind, his own reasoning, his own observations. And why? Well, we know there's a deeper reason, and we did mention it last week, and that's sin. Man is proud. He is broken in his mind. He cannot acknowledge and cannot acknowledge the God of the Bible, and if he acknowledges the flood, then he must acknowledge the holy God who sent it. He must acknowledge his own sin problem. And so he will turn to his own reasoning and other explanations over that which would cause him to confront the God who is. Other questions or comments about what we've talked about so far about the flood? Yes, Joe. Yeah, it is really astounding, um, to repeat what you were saying, Joe, it's astounding that the waters did indeed go about 15 cubits above, or more than 20 feet above, the highest mountains all over the earth. That is a lot of water. And some may say, well, think about how the highest mountains today, there's no way water could have gotten that high. Well, remember, and we haven't discussed it yet, the, top, the, po- the topography of the earth was different back then. The earth was dramatically reformed by the flood. That's actually going to be the subject of our next Sunday school lesson. But, with the way the world looked at that time, even the highest mountains were covered by more than 20 feet. That is a deluge. Other questions or comments? Well, Paul already alluded to it, but one common excuse for not believing in the flood is the alleged insufficiency of the ark itself. Skeptics say things like, the ark just giant wooden box? It could never have survived a year-long flood. Wooden ships are notoriously leaky. Even the biggest wooden ships couldn't last for more than a year because of how much water they took on. This box would not have fared well in such waters, especially stormy waters. There's no way the ark was seaworthy. Or, they say, there's no way Noah could have fit all the different animal species on the ark. I mean, just look at all the different animals we have today. There's no way that the ark was big enough. Or they might say, you claim that all creatures went on the ark with Noah? Well, that must mean the dinosaurs. But how could Noah have fit the dinosaurs on the ark too? They're huge. He's supposed to fit those along with the rest of the animals? Do you really expect me to believe that? Well, how would we respond to these objections? Are you able to make a confident defense? I do like what one answers in Genesis writer said, a basic Bible-affirming response. And we can say the same thing. Well, obviously the ark was good enough because you and I are alive today. Obviously it was big enough for the animals because the animals are still around. 
God doesn't lie. His word is true. We may not know exactly how he did it, but it's clear that he did it because we're all here. We should say that. We can say that. And that upholds the authority of God's word. But we can say more. Because by paying attention to the Genesis text itself, as well as employing a few scientific inferences that are consistent with what the Bible presents, we can see clearly and affirm the great wisdom of the ark God instructed Noah to build. We can see how the ark was indeed seaworthy and how all the land animals, dinosaurs dinosaurs included, were comfortably represented on the ark. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How large was the ark? We'll first re-examine the descriptions of the ark given in Genesis 6, and then we'll answer questions about the ark's size and shape, and we'll finish by answering questions about the animals on the ark. Let's go before the Lord now in prayer. Lord, you are great. Your wisdom is far above any of the so-called wisdom of man. Lord, I pray that you would show forth your wisdom to us in this class, that you would give us understanding by your Holy Spirit as we look at your word, and God, that we'd be provoked to awe and just profound thankfulness, God, for preserving life as you did in the flood, not just for Noah, but for all of us who were his descendants. Thank you for that, O Lord and God. In Jesus' name, amen. As was mentioned before we get started, let me ask, how do we often see the ark typically portrayed? Yes, Craig. Yeah, it's like a cartoon. Can somebody give me more specifics? Yeah, Steve. Always the giraffe heads, right? <laughs> this little tub, this little cute little boat. Uh, actually, somebody gave me a prop. This is an actual representation of the ark, believe it or not. And we can even see what it looked like inside. I don't know if all of you can see that, but these giraffes, apparently, they, their heads are not sticking out, but no, I'm just kidding, of course. That's not what the ark looked like, but it's the way it's often depicted. It is cute, but far from functional and far from what the Bible actually describes the ark looked like. You should have received a worksheet for today's class entitled Ark Facts. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand and Eric, and, or Eric might be able to come, out, come around and get that to you. I think we need one over here. On this worksheet is a more realistic picture of what the ark actually looked like. Now you may say, really? That looks like it has some strange features. Well, as we investigate today, you'll see exactly why we think the ark looked like this. And there are a bunch of blanks on your worksheet. As we work through the lesson today, please fill in those blanks. This will be a, a useful reference to you when it comes to understanding the ark. Well, let's actually begin our investigation by turning to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 13 to 16. So open your Bibles to that section, please. Let's reread the only description of the ark that we get in the Bible, the only physical description. So starting in verse 13, chapter 6 of Genesis. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark inside of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. 
all right, not that long of a description, but let's investigate. We'll start with observations as we always do. Before we interpret, we need to observe what's actually in the text. God is the one speaking here, and he's speaking to Noah and telling Noah about building an ark. Now, what is an ark? What does the word actually mean? We might want to say box. And there is another item in the Bible translated as ark, which is a box, and that is the Ark of the Covenant, right? The Hebrew word for that ark is aron, and it can be translated box, chest, or coffin. And you remember that box was carried around by the people of Israel, and they put the testimony, they put the Ten Commandments in the ark, along with some other items. However, this word in Hebrew for ark is different. It's not the same word. It's teba or teva, and it's only used in this passage in the Bible and in one other place. Interestingly, it is the same word used to describe the floating basket that Jochebed made for Moses in Exodus chapter 2. Just to reread that verse for you, Exodus 2.3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, or an ark of reeds, and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. So this word, teva, only appears in these two places, and we actually don't know what it means. We don't know where it comes from, and we only have these two passages to help figure out what it means. The shape, size, and building material for these two arcs, these two tevas, is obviously very different in these two passages. But in both, both cases, we can see some similarities. Teva refers to some kind of floating, life-preserving structure. Therefore, some interpreters have offered a translation of Teva that's more about purpose than shape. An ark, or Teva, would actually be a lifeboat. Anyways, so, ark. Of what was Noah's ark to be made? Gopher wood. What is gopher wood? Again, we don't know. The Hebrew word gopher, that's actually it's just straight up repeated for us in English, it appears no other place in the Bible and no other place in Hebrew. Some say the word indicates cypress or cedar wood. Others say that it actually indicates a process to be applied to the wood, like planing or covering with pitch. It's also possible that gopher wood was wood from a tree that no longer exists in our world. We cannot say for sure what it really means. But no, it has nothing to do with the animal's gophers. Noah is told to build the ark with rooms. Useful to know, the word, the word for rooms here actually is the word nest in Hebrew, and it is translated that way in many other places in the Bible, so rooms or nests. With what was Noah to cover the ark, inside and out? Pitch, pitch that's right, a pitch covering. And for what is pitch used? It's a sealant, right? It's for waterproofing. And we actually saw even in Exodus when the little basket is made for Noah, it's covered with pitch. It's um, coated with pitch. So on your ark's facts, ark fact sheet, you see that little arrow pointing to the side of the ark. That's where you should label pitch covering because that would be over the outside and the inside of the ark. Now, according to the passage, what are the dimensions of the ark? How long? Or, go ahead, Rob. 300 cubits long, how wide? 50 cubits, and how tall? 30 cubits. So 300 by 50 by 30. Now go ahead and fill those dimensions on your worksheet. 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits tall. 
By now we know what a qubit is, but let me just ask, what is a qubit again? It's approximately 18 inches, and where does that measurement come from? That's right, it is the length of your fingertips to your elbow, or it's the length of a man's elbow to his fingertips. However, as you know, the qubit measurement varied by culture, and also varied by time. Some qubits were shorter, some qubits were longer. They all hovered around 18 inches, but some of them were as long as 21 inches. Some cultures even had two kinds of qubits, a longer and a shorter qubit. And the Hebrews were one of those cultures. Now, which qubit is meant here? Well, that's actually a somewhat detailed, or that's a somewhat involved question. And I, I'm not going to recapitulate those details for you. I can refer you to a good article from Answers in Genesis, however. But probably the qubit meant here for the ark is the long qubit, which has a length of 20.4 inches. The long Hebrew qubit. Now, we can't say this for sure, but there are some good reasons to say that, to think that. Noah used the long qubit. Now, if we use the long qubit in our calculations, let's do a little bit of math. What is the length of the arc in feet? So you're going to have to convert from qubits to inches and then convert from inches to feet. So 300 qubits is how many feet? Okay, so that would be using the short qubit. Thanks, Joe, for mentioning that. Around 450 feet would be how long it is if you use the short qubit. But using the long qubit, it's going to be a little bit longer. How much exactly? Yeah, Rob? A little bit less. Not 525. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, it's not, not 500. Um, 20.4. Right, and then the 0.4 times 20. Or times 300. All right, so I'll, I'll do the steps for you. 20.4 times 300 gives you 6,120 inches. Should give you 6,120 inches. 6,120 inches divided by 12, 12 inches per foot, gives you 510 feet. 510 feet. So we wouldn't be wrong to say it's around 500 feet, but 510 feet. So note that in your sheet as well. The length is 300 cubits, but probably 510 feet using the long cubit. And I'll help you out with the other ones as well. The width, that'd be 20.4 inches times 50 cubits, or 1,020 inches. Divide that by 12, you get 85 feet. So its width would be about 85 feet. And then its height, well, that's just 51 feet. Very similar calculation to the length. Just move, remove one of the zeros. So 510 by 85 by 51. As you can see, or maybe you don't see yet, but this is a very large vessel. You may notice that little icon next to the arc on your worksheet. That's a semi-trailer. You can actually fit, in the dimensions of the arc that we just calculated, you could fit 500 semi-trailers in the volume of such an arc. And uh, just for reference, a short qubit would yield arc dimensions of about 438 feet by 73 feet by 44 feet. So a little bit smaller, but same proportions. All right, so we've got some idea of the dimensions of the arc. Now, God also tells Noah to make a door and a window for the ark. The word for window, there are actually a number of different words in Hebrew for window. This word actually means noon light, which may indicate something like a closable skylight. You may see that on your worksheet, there's this big long strip in the middle. This could have been a rather long skylight with several openings, or maybe it could just be just one. Now, where exactly is the window where the skylight supposed to go? According to the text. 
It says within a cubit from the top, or to a cubit from the top. And now where exactly on the arc are you supposed to put it? A cubit from the top. Hard question to answer, right? Because it doesn't say. Now where does the door go? In the side of the arc. Which side? It doesn't say. How many cubits high was the door supposed to be? It doesn't say. How big was the door supposed to be? It doesn't say. We can make um, we can make hypotheses about how big the door was or where it would be, but we don't actually get those details from the text. You see the door, the square of the door on your fact sheet, you can label that door, and you can label that top section a window. But we can't be more specific than that. God also tells Noah to give the ark three decks. How tall was each deck supposed to be? It doesn't say. How is one supposed to travel between the decks? It doesn't say. Though, again, we can come up with some pretty good ideas about what you would use. Some kind of ramp makes sense because animals are not going to be able to climb ladders. and You've got some pretty big animals coming on the ark. You need some ramps to get from deck to deck. Hmm, assuredly, there's some other ladders there, too. But these details are not in the Bible. Okay, so we've made observations of the descriptions of the ark. Let's ask some interpretive questions now. Is the description of the ark that we get in Genesis an exhaustive blueprint, or is it an overview of specifications? It must be an overview, right? Because, as we've seen, some details of the ark are simply not mentioned. How big is the the door supposed to be? Where should I put it? How am I supposed to put the wood together? How am I supposed to build the planks of this ark so that it doesn't leak? How many rooms? How many nests should I build? How big should each one be? How should I um, allow travel between the decks? Where should I prepare the skylight? What kind of covering should I put around it so that no water gets into the ark? The Bible doesn't say. So this cannot be an exhaustive instruction manual. We should ask then a related question, how would Noah know how to answer those questions? How would he know how big the door was supposed to be and where exactly to put it? Only two ways. How could he have known? Either God told him some things that are not recorded in the Bible, or, that's right, God just left him to figure it out. God said, these are the things that you've got to do, and I assume that you know how to do the rest. It has to be one of those. Either God gave him other instructions not mentioned here, or Noah was supposed to use his own know-how. Now, this means that while all of these things in Genesis 6 are true of the ark, there must also have been features of the ark not mentioned in the chapter. Like the following. The dimensions of the ark that we noted are the dimensions of a rectangle. But could the ark have been something other than a box? Could it have been? Yes, it could have been, right? Because we don't necessarily get all the features of the ark. It isn't necessarily a rectangle. Could it have been a rectangle? Yeah, it could have been just a simple rectangle. But it could also have been something that's not a rectangle. We would not be violating the text by thinking that it was something different than a rectangle. In fact, when you um, when we consider things that float on the water today, ships, we talk about their length and width, but it's assumed that we're not talking about a rectangle. We're talking about the, the, the shape of a ship. So 
if it could have been other than a box, would Noah have been violating God's instructions if he included ship-like components in his construction, like a front that came to a point, or combing, coverings around the windows? Would he be violating God's commands if he included those? No. No, he certainly wouldn't have been. Because there are obviously features in the ark that are not mentioned here. So, to summarize what I was just saying, though Noah could have produced a box-like ark, and God could have successfully preserved such an ark, it is more likely that God gave Noah these instructions, and Noah knew that he was not just building a box, he was building a ship. And therefore, he constructed the ark like a ship, as you would construct a ship. Now, there have been seas since the beginning of creation. It's not like, how could he possibly know what a ship was? There have always been seas. And it's been around 1,700 years since creation started. It's likely that man had learned how to build ships. Just as he learned animal husbandry, various musical instruments, ironworking. These are things mentioned in the book of Genesis. But the ark was a unique ship. It was a uniquely huge ship. It was also built, likely, with the challenges of the flood in mind. So what exactly did it look like if it was not a box? And how did its features help it manage through the flood? Well, as I said, it probably looked like something that is depicted on your worksheet. That design of the ark is very purposeful. It's the one promoted by answers in Genesis. The front, I don't have my sheet in front of me anymore. Oh, yes, I do. So the front is actually this side. The front is the part with the raised fin on the right. With the piece sticking out of the bottom on the left, that would be the back of the ship. Now, why this shape? Oh, I forgot to give the video to Andrew, but we're going to watch a short video from Andrew, or from, not Andrew, Answers in Genesis. Let me just uh, hand this over to Andrew for a second. And we're going to get a little bit more of an explanation as to why this shape, why Answers in Genesis thinks that this was probably the shape that the ark was, or this could be like the shape that the ark was. So, Andrew, if you could go to Lesson 4, says modeling the ark and start from minute 230. While Andrew's queuing that up, just a little bit of background about this video. It's kind of in the middle of a larger video series. So it's going to feel like in media res, you're jumping right into the middle of the action. It refers at the beginning of this video to John Whitcomb and Henry Morse. Those names you might recognize. They were the authors of the landmark young earth creationist book, The Genesis Flood, in the, um, in the 1960s, 1970s. So you're going to hear a little bit from, I think, John Whitcomb. Actually, maybe not. But they, they make a reference to him. And also you're going to see a reference to Tim, a guy named Tim in this video. Who's Tim? Well, that Tim is Tim Lovett, a mechanical engineer and an art specialist in the Creation Museum. So just wanted you to be aware. A minute 2, or go to 2.30. Yeah. All right, let's see. This is, oh, four minutes. I'm going to talk, talk a little bit about the arc design and why they think it looks the way it does on your worksheet. Just get that sound queued up. One moment. 
So as they get that ready, just pay attention to this video for why, because I'm asking afterwards, why this shape makes sense for the arc. Should have given them more time to prepare. It's all my fault. Sorry, Andrew. Uh oh, still no sound. Give them another minute, otherwise we'll just move on. Ooh, so technical. Wait, what? <laughs> That's right, I can, I can narrate. <laughs> That's right, it's through the lip, syn lip syncing. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I'll, I'll be that good. I'll be like, and this is this. Oh, no, but this is that. Okay. <laughs> well, we can just have that playing in the background. I'll tell you some things about. Um, tell you some things about. Uh, well, thanks for the vote of confidence. So there are several reasons why this shape for the arc makes sense, and uh, these will be presented to you in the video. But I'll just present, to, present them to you now. First of all, the the arc proportions that are given in the Bible, they're not arbitrary. They are the proportions of a ship. So when Noah was given those. Proportions, he likely understood, oh, I'm building a ship. And ships are not boxes. If you wanted to build a ship, you wouldn't build it like just any old box. Actually, Tim Lovett, the mechanical engineer, he testifies in a different episode that the proportions of the Ark are actually extremely similar to modern cargo ships. Even one of his colleagues, an engineering colleague, came to believe in the Genesis flood account just based on the proportions of the Ark. Because he says, that is too remarkable. It's too remarkable that it would be the exact same proportions as modern cargo vessels that are maximized for storage, stability, and um, comfort as it moves through the water. So there's the proportions of the ark. They are ship-like proportions. There's also the long hull. Now, if you're going to design something just for floating, you wouldn't make such a long hull. It would actually decrease the, the strength of the ark. It requires more wood. It requires more labor in putting the ark together. Why the long hole? Well, you'd only make a long hole if you were designing that ark to move through the waters, not just float. And in Genesis 7.18, actually, we get a small little piece about the ark's experience on the waters. Genesis 7.18 says the ark floated on the surface of the water. 
The word for floated in Hebrew actually always implies movement. It's a more general word that describes um, movement, like walking. And so the ark was not just sitting there being battered around. It moved. The ark was not designed to be stationary. It was a ship designed to move through the waters. Another reason that we think the, the ark had a ship-like shape is because it's, this is what we see on other ancient ships. And these features, the two features in the front and the back, they're actually the same features that you see in other ancient vessels. The rear appendage, that's the thing that sticks out in the back of the ship, has mystified modern naval engineers for many years. But the ancients likely knew what they were doing because these two features were very important for ship safety and comfort on deep ocean voyages. Well, what exactly are these features and, and what do they do? Well, they're all about handling winds and waves, which is something that the ark would need to do. When you are going through a storm, or if you are going on the deep ocean, and you don't have some sort of features for interacting with the winds and the waves, then the boat is going to get slapped around by those waves. The best way to handle waves, for instance, is not to just have them come along the side of you, because they're just going to keep rocking your boat. And that could be really dangerous, depending on how powerful those waves are. The best way to handle waves is to go along them, to go through them. If the waves are going this way, then you want your boat to go this way. If the way you don't want the waves to be coming at you and your boat going this way, you're just going to get knocked around. Same thing for the winds. So what do these features do then? Well, that large, that pronounced stem in the front, I don't have the picture in front of me, but the, that fin that sticks out, it's all about catching the wind. It doesn't necessarily have to be a fin. It could be any sort of raised structure, even a sail. But a sail would take a little bit more uh, management. This fin would catch the wind and it would put the ark in the direction of the waves rather than getting slapped on the side by the waves. And it's the same thing with the piece in the back, the skeg, the fixed rudder. Why is it there? Why would it have been there? It's to get the ark moving the same way as the waves, as the current, rather than getting slapped on the side by those waves, knocking the boat around, go with them, go through them. And so the skeg would orient the ship as the waters push Whitcomb against... and Morris showed the world hey, that the biblical ark... But it's too late now. <laughs> I've already summarized it, but that's okay. I think I have another video feature that if we have time, we can watch that one. Thank you, though. As the waters push against the skeg or the fixed rudder, they'll orient the ark so that it moves along the waves. Same thing with the wind. The wind pushes against the fin, orients the ark to go along the waves. And it's not crazy for us to think that Noah did those things because we see those same features on ancient ships. And it's good for handling strong waves and strong winds. Important not for just giving a safe ride, but a comfortable ride because they were going to be on the ark for a year. Really, the proportions and features of the ark were designed for maximum, or for a balance of stability, strength, and comfort. And you can find more about this design at um, answersingenesis.org. And we can't, we can't say that this is the way that Noah built the ark. And if you believe anything else, well, then you're a heretic. No, obviously, no. Noah probably built something like this. He built a ship. He built something that was seaworthy. Maybe it didn't look exactly like this or what's on your worksheet. But it was a seaworthy craft able to handle the unique challenges of the flood waters. By the way, as the objection that wooden boats are always leaky, that's actually only a modern problem. Since about the Middle Ages, wooden boats have had 
trouble taking on water. But ancient shipmakers had a different way of making wooden boats, which is actually a lot more effective. It was more labor-intensive. This, um, this style of planking was called mortis and tenon planking. We didn't even know about it for a long time. I can't really explain how that works, but it, was, it took a lot of work, but you were able to put the planks together in such a way that it very effectively kept out water, but it still kept the ship light. Ancient Greeks actually used this style of planking for their different ships, and their ships are light enough that you could carry them onto land. So kind of an amazing, kind of amazing uh, procedure, one that had been lost. And so we only had trouble with wooden ships ever since. Anyways, so the ark was very seaworthy. But what about those other objections? How did Noah cram all of the animal species on there, dinosaurs included? Well, let's look back at the text. Let's look at the rest of Genesis 6, starting in verse 17. Let's read verse 17 to 22. Here we get some descriptions about the animals that Noah was to bring to the ark, or bring on the ark. Verse 17. Behold I, even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself. And it shall be fruit for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. All right, we won't look as in-depth in this set of verses, but there is one important aspect of the text that I want to draw your attention to. What phrase keeps repeating in verses 18 and 19? I think I hear it whispering. That's right. According to kind or after their kind. He says, bring two animals. Um, yeah, bring two of every kind or put two of every kind on the ark. And remember, we've already talked about kinds, right? We talked at last quarter when we were talking about creation. Noah only needed two animals of each kind, male and female, and then 14 animals of each of the clean kinds of animals. Some say, okay, maybe it's 14, maybe it's seven, but that's a separate issue. But by the way, why so many clean animals? Why, why not just take two? That's right. Actually, those two things both mentioned are probably true. They are for sacrificing after the flood, and you're going to need more to repopulate when you're using them for sacrifices. And remember, after the flood, God says you can eat animals. But the Israelites know you're supposed to eat clean animals. And Noah seemed to have some sort of knowledge of that too. So those clean animals would have been for eating and for sacrificing after the flood. So you need more of them. So we've got kinds going on in the ark. Remember, that is a very broad category. It's similar to the modern scientific designation, families. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar. And you can see on your worksheets various examples of the cat kind, or things that we would call part of the cat family in our day. You've got lions, cougars, bobcats, and tigers, but they're all just part of the cat kind. So how many animals of the cat kind 
did Noah need to take on the ark? Just two. Just two. All, think of all the different kind of cats, all the species of cats you can think of today. Noah just needed two. Oh, think about the various species of dog we have today. Domesticated dogs, wolves, hyenas, dingoes, coyotes, African wild dogs, etc. How many dogs did Noah need to take on the ark? Just two. Of all those species, those species would have been different back then because a lot of time has gone by, but of all the species of dog, he just needed two. That is true of every animal kind. Think about it. Only two spiders. Only two beetles. Only two hawks. Only two bats. Only two bears. Only two deer. Only two snakes. Only two frogs. Only two turtles. That drastically cuts down on the amount of animals you need to take in the ark, doesn't it? And this would have been true for the dinosaurs as well. We classify many different species of dinosaur from the fossil record today. We have as many as 700. But if you break them down into kinds, there are really probably only about 50 dinosaur kinds. So a lot more manageable. And how could Noah have exercised some wisdom when it came to fitting the bigger animals, like dinosaurs, onto the ark? Yes, Magda. Take smaller versions. Take the juveniles on board. Don't grab the full-grown mama. Get smaller versions. It's not necessary that they reproduce on the ark. They can do that afterwards. There's no reason to get the full-size brontosaurus when two young versions will do. They can grow to full-size afterwards. Meanwhile, they'll eat less, and they'll take up less space. Now, Noah probably didn't take newborns on the ark because they need motherly nourishment but he most likely took younger, travel-sized versions of these big animals, dinosaurs included. By the way, not all dinosaurs are big. You may remember in our lesson on dinosaurs, the average size of a full-grown dinosaur was actually what? About the size of a... Yeah, about the size of a goat or a sheep. Not all dinosaurs are big. Only some of them were. And the average size of today's animals is even less than that less than the, than the size of a sheep. So certainly he didn't have to take the huge versions of these big animals, and not all animals are that big, and he only needed to take two of each kind. Now you might be wondering, well, how many kinds did he take? How many kinds of animals are there? Well, if we take the number of scientifically classified families today, that number is a little bit hard to track down, but one source I read put the number a little bit over 5,000. 5,000 scientifically classified families today. However, as I said, kinds do not perfectly align with that classification. Some families actually have multiple kinds, or some kinds are actually contain multiple families in today's designations. Actually, in 2011, Answers in Genesis began a special research project seeking to determine the number of animal kinds. That project is not yet complete, as far as I understand. But according to a publication from about 2013, and their work up to that date, they estimated the number of animal kinds in the world to be around 950. Only 950 animal kinds. Lots of variation in those kinds, but only 950 kinds. That means if we include the extra amount of clean animals and birds, there are probably about only how many animals on the ark? Around 2,000. Only about 2,000. For such a large ship, that is very manageable. So, in response to those who say, there's no way Noah could fit all those animal species on the ark, the answer is actually really straightforward. He didn't have to fit all the animal species on the ark. He only needed to bring pairs 
of the different animal kinds. And he likely exercised wisdom regarding the maturity of each kind of animal that he brought onto the ark, taking the smaller versions. But someone will say, are you saying then that the diversity that we see within the animal kinds today happened only in the last 4,000 years? Yes, actually. It's the best way to explain the speciation that we, or the speciation we see today. Just for the sake of time, I'm not going to try and uh, queue up that video, but there's another video from Answers in Genesis that talks about the rapid speciation that has taken place since the flood. Really, the genetic diversity that God has included in each animal kind is in- incredible. When you think about all the different kinds of dog, or all the different kinds of beetle, or all the different kinds of parrot, or things like that. They look so different to us today, but the genetic information for those kinds was always there. They say, well, how did they end up becoming so different? I mean, you've got some frogs that are poisonous and some frogs that aren't. Well, that's where we talk about the, well, I guess we can use different terms for it, but the the selection that happens due to the environments. Poisonous frogs, or the, the frogs that ended up having the poisonous information in their genetic code, which was always there in the original frog kind, they did well in certain environments. But other frogs that didn't have that poisonous genetic information in their genetic code, they did better in other environments. And so you get drastically different species of frog. Same thing for dogs. You get some dogs that have a lot of hair or that are really big, and you get some dogs that are really small and don't have that much hair. They end up excelling in different environments, and the ones that don't excel in those environments, they just die out, and their information is taken out of the genetic pool. Now, this is not macroevolution. This is not evolution as we, as we think of it. This is just the selection that takes place due to the genes that are already there. No new information is being added. But this species, this speciation is taking place due to the way certain species excelled in certain environments and how certain species did not excel in certain environments and then died out. So yes, the variation we see today is explained by the animals taken on the ark. So far from being helpless to the objections that skeptics raise, skeptics raise about the viability of the ark, the Bible really stands unscathed. And there are very reasonable explanations for what the ark probably looked like, how it functioned, and how it easily housed all of the animal kinds, dinosaurs included. And as Answers in Genesis, Answers in Genesis emphasizes, not only did the ark accommodate all of the animals, but there was still room. Room for what? Room for food, yeah, Noah had to get food, but also people. It would be a little bit disingenuous of Noah to say, come on to the ark, but we don't really have space for you. No, he had room for the people as well, if they would just turn and repent. Now, the Bible doesn't need our explanations to prove its viability, but God has shown us that his word is true. Every word, or not but God, this is an idea of the same lines. Even without any explanation, God has shown us that his word is true, that he doesn't lie, that his scripture cannot be broken. It happened, even if we can't explain how it happened. And yet, with these specific objections about the ark, we can show people from the Bible that their objections don't have any ground. They don't have any support. We can point people to the authority of the scripture and say, he could have fit all the animals. He did fit all the animals because he took them according to kind. Now, there are many other questions that people 
bring up about the ark. Well, how did eight people care for that many animals? How did the animals spread out after the flood? How did plants and aquatic animals survive outside the ark? I mean, the world was pretty tumultuous. How did the animals, how did the sea animals survive? What about salt versus freshwater animals? And many other questions. We don't have time to address those questions in full today, but maybe we'll have a few minutes to briefly address some of those if you have questions. But there are many great resources, and it's a little bit hard to read those things, many great resources on the Answers in Genesis website, articles about each one of those questions. Because remember, Answers in Genesis, they're all about answering those questions. Yeah, Answers in Genesis. So definitely check out those resources. But even from today's class, we can see that the ark was seaworthy. It could hold the animals. It could hold the dinosaurs. Next week, we'll talk about how, as I alluded to earlier, how the terrain of the earth was dramatically altered by the flood. And that'll be our last lesson on the flood. Yes, Dwayne. Pretty cool. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Dwayne. Just to repeat what he said, Answers in Genesis, not only in the Creation Museum do they have some things featured, um, some features about the ark and its construction, but they're actually making a life-size ark. There have been some attempts in the past to recreate the ark, but nothing, um, nothing to the true scale of what the ark actually was. But Answers in Genesis has been working on that, the ark encounter, as it's called. And we've been praying about that, if you've been following the prayer sheet, because they've... Um, been battling the state of Kentucky a little bit over um, some um, legal issues regarding that. Anyways, but yeah, going to open in 2016. I think that'd actually be really cool to see. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, there there are encounters using the long qubit. Right. Yeah, Roy. Yeah, thanks, Roy. Mentioning that the, the mortise and tenon planking is actually featured at the exhibit, and you can see how it works and how effective it was. Other questions or comments? That's right. Noah sent out a dove and a raven is, um, toward the end of the flood. That's right, Carol. I think there's another question. Yes, Joe. Yeah, that's useful. Another useful visual for imagining the length of the arc, longer than one and a half football fields. Thanks, Joe. I think there's another hand somewhere. 
or maybe not. Okay, that's fine. So that's it for today. We have one more week with our memory verse. Remember, it's a short one, but a valuable one. This is another example of where the New Testament confirms the historicity of the ark. And then also, we see the role of Noah in the whole ark experience, not only building the ark and being preserved through it, but being a preacher of righteousness, which is what we are today, right? We're in a very similar situation as Noah. So we got one more week after this week to memorize this. And uh, I actually feel like it's a somewhat easier one to memorize because of the, the way the phrases break down. Maybe that's just me. But let's read it together as we close. And God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. All right, let's pray. Lord God, you are awesome. Your wisdom is all excelling. God, we are so foolish when we, when we believe our wisdom is greater than yours, not just when it comes to things like the ark, but when it comes to even just sin. We say, God, I think I know what really will benefit me, and it's not what you say. God, help us to believe in your wisdom. Would remind us again of just how good and wise you are so that we can just love you because you are great and worthy of praise, worthy of all love. Lord, let us worship you with sincere hearts. I pray that you would bless the rest of this service today. Amen.